0: So like I said, if you've listened to Dutch Sheets this week, I promise you, I did not copy his messages. I gave this to Kyle last Sunday. I wake up Monday through Friday and listen to him talking and um, decreeing things over the lost and the prodigal. And so that to me is a confirmation. When I came up or when God put this on my heart, um, I believe it was in October, I started writing things. The next morning, I listened to Dutch Sheets and he talked about it. So I told Kyle that, and he says, oh, okay, well, what about the weekend I get married? He's off getting married, for those who don't know, so that's why he's not here. Y'all try not to bother him this week. <laughs> Let him enjoy his, his honeymoon, okay? So anyway, <laughs> so, you know, confirm, I can't talk, a confirming word, when God lays something on your heart, you know, you're always like, gosh, I don't. Is that you, God? Well, obviously, if he's talking about loving people and asking for people to come to him and using you to do that, making that divine appointment, obviously, that's God. That's not Satan. Satan's not going to tell you to go witness to somebody or testify to somebody about God. So let's just make sure that's cleared up in your minds. Um, That would never be Satan. He don't want the gospel going forth. So all of us who have accepted Christ have a testimony on how that came to pass. Some of us may have had an awesome experience. Your church at that time may have received you well. They may have discipled you. The whole nine yards grew you. That's awesome. They just enveloped you and wrapped their arms around you and just carried you through in, in your growth process. But not everybody had that experience. And that's unfortunate. <laughs> Some were left feeling awkward after they accepted Christ. They come attending church. They didn't feel like they fit in. They're out of place, or they simply didn't were not able to measure up to the church's expectations. We often see people accept Christ, and then we either never see them again, or they last a few months or possibly a little longer, and then go right back to the previous lifestyle, how they lived without Christ in their life. And then we, the church, tend to say things like, well, then they were never really saved. Without taking on the accountability of asking ourselves, were we really the church to them? Did we love and nurture them, disciple them, give them time to grow and the grace to do so? He wants us to love them, not just because he does. He asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? And after Peter told him, Yes, Lord, I love you each time, Jesus' response was, Then feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. We know this was after Peter had denied Christ three times. Jesus was showing Peter his level of grace. He was giving Peter that opportunity to redeem himself. He was telling him, I'll show you, Peter, the tender mercy that you're supposed to show others with that kindness and that humility. And he's saying to us, if we love him, then go do the same to each other in this body, in the church, and to those scared and lost, stubborn sheep. <laughs> he was saying to us, love them. He wasn't upset with, with Peter with what he did. He had mercy on him. He had understanding. So if you love Christ then you love his sheep. It's not an if, and, or. If you don't have that love for other people, then you, exa- you need to examine your love for Christ. Amen? So to those that came to Christ only to feel inadequate as a part of the church, did they see Christ's love in us, or were they received with what I would call a Pharisee mindset? And we're going to dig into that a little bit, and it's not going to be comfortable. <laughs> I'm just warning you. Um, it wasn't comfortable for me. When we think of Pharisees during Jesus' ministry, we know that they were portrayed as very religious, hell-bent on keeping the law, whether it was scripturally, godly, or not. Their religion was not based on God's love for people, and they didn't even recognize Christ, God's Son, Christ. This tells me they did not understand having a personal relationship with the Father. hmm <laughs> Therefore, they were unable to recognize his character in Christ. Are you able to recognize Christ, the character of God? And that'll, that'll speak. If you really reflect on your heart, do you know the character of God? If our focus is having relationship with other things over our relationship with God, then those things blind us to our lack of relationship with God such as keeping law was the Pharisees' idol, and it blocked their intimacy with God. Our will over God's will prevents God having his way with us. Our humility gets lost in self-indulgence and self-will. Distractions like social media, even ministry, can interfere with intimacy with the Father if you make it your idol, if you put it before him. Looking through scripture of how they base their faith tells me that they expected their religion to save them not their long-awaited Messiah. They were waiting on a Messiah, but it was their Messiah, their idea of who this would look like, act like, who would save them from the Roman Empire, not to save them from their sins. After all, the religion did that, right? The keeping of religious rules were how they measured their holiness. That's where so many people are in the church, and that's why I had to come out what I had to come out of as well. I was expecting religion to be my savior instead of Christ. As long as my attendance was stellar and I met all the church's expectations of me, then I was good. Pastor Kyle stated this to me when he's reading this. He said, religion is relationship with the law rather than the lawgiver. Y'all need to write that down. That's pretty good. That's why we pay (laughs) him. There's nothing wrong with following the law, but there's no point in following the law if you do not know God. Amen. The Pharisees wanted to be saved from Rome, where God wanted them to be saved from their ultimate enemy, which was their sin. Amen. God knew their hearts, their hatred for Christ, and he used it in his plan to save not only the Jews, but anyone who would accept him. John three sixteen through 17 for God so loved the world... That he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. some Y'all might have heard that already tonight. (laughs) But that the world through him might be saved. That's the desire of his heart. And that's the desire, or should be the desire, of the church's heart. To truly understand the scripture, though, you cannot look at it through a religious lens. Because if we do, religious t- religion tells us that we have to be cleansed through our own doing, which would leave a lot of residue. Unable to be fully cleansed.
1: <laughs>
0: okay, for example, I'm fixing to do a little exposure here of myself. I was divorced in 2006. And religion would say I'm not worthy to be up here speaking due, due to that alone. So a divorced woman Being allowed to do this would push some over the edge. Therefore, in their eyes, I'm not totally cleansed by the blood of Christ and that I can only function partially within the body, not fully. I had a conversation with someone who did not understand that salvation and forgiveness of sin is for everybody, not just those who measured up to their religious rules. This person who was raised in church actually stated that they did not know if I was saved or not due to me being divorced. Didn't matter why. Just the fact that I was divorced. I didn't look at them judgmentally. It hurt my heart. They did not realize why Christ came. They spent a lifetime in church. And they didn't even understand what Christ did for us. It's not something of our own doing. (laughs) Well, some can ask, You know, well, what was the reason behind the divorce? And this is what I've got to say. If God, and this goes for anyone, for whatever sin, if God truly cleanses all from sin, then why would the reason matter if you've repented of your sins and chosen to live for God? If that was the case, if it mattered, then that saying sin was not defeated and is stronger than Christ's resurrection and redeeming power. Okay, I said, (laughs) if that was the case and that saying sin was not defeated and is stronger than Christ's resurrection and redeeming power, then you would have to disregard most of the New Testament. Everything Paul formerly saw who murdered Christians wrote in the New Testament. Either you believe sin is forgiven or you believe it's not. And that doesn't mean just your sin. It means all who come to Christ who repent and live for him. Your device for measuring the degree of sin that's forgivable is not used by God. Jesus measures it a different way. Pharisees, the same ones who killed Christ, are the same ones dictating who was acceptable for God to forgive and who was not. Christ chose Saul, a murderer of Christians, and repented and then led Paul to be a prominent teacher and missionary, and yet we want to dictate to God who he can or cannot use to minister on his behalf. People, the enemy is the one that wants to close people's mouth about speaking the truth of God's word. Don't be the enemy. So you might have a Pharisee mindset if you have a list of what's forgivable sins are and what's not or who can or cannot be forgiven as well as dictating who or what venue God can use to minister his truth. In Luke 15, we see how Jesus handled the unforgivable and the Pharisees. Now, I actually have a tattoo on my arm that says, Relentless Pursuit, Luke 15. heard somebody gasp. (laughs) (laughs) When we relentlessly pursue something, it means it has significant value to us. Our relentless pursuit of God isn't about us trying to find Him. He's made Himself available. Our relentless pursuit of God is about deepening our relationship with Him and having more revelation of the things of God, having eyes to see and ears to hear. Proverbs 2 3 through 5 says, For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. Referencing Daniel 2, 21 through 22, he says, He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. Y'all want to know the deep and secret things of God? So do I. We've heard some religious Pharisee mindsets say that my tattoo would mark me as too residued to use fully in the kingdom as well. Not because of what it says, but that I have a tattoo. Funny, Jesus didn't address any of that. (laughs) He he addressed attitudes of the religious and matters of the heart. Again, Jesus measures your adequacy a different way. So here I stand before you. Do you see see me as a tattooed divorced woman (laughs) or a redeemed daughter of the king who said yes to God, regardless of people's judgment or approval? Depending on your answer, you may or may not have a vericing mindset. When I say you, I'm including myself as I came from a very religious background and I've had to break through those strongholds to understand God's heart towards all people. And it may just be what you've been taught all your life. It may not be on purpose. It's been ingrained in you. Religious teaching isn't always taught through the venue of God's love. It takes Christ's love to see people for who he created them to be. And this is how we need to see those who are homeward bound. You cannot see them through a religious lens. Christ came to deliver us from all sin, not just your sin of choice. God had to teach me this. And it was a hard lesson. And it's very personal. And honestly, I haven't shared it. And maybe God just said, okay, now's the time. It's nothing new, unfortunately. What I'm about to tell you is pretty rampant, and it's sickening. But there is forgiveness. I was a little girl, and I had an uncle who liked little girls. It left me very afraid, very scared. And this was a professing Christian. I get older, I don't see him much, he kind of left the family, that was good news to me. I get older, 20s, 30s, of course I never forgot it, and in my heart, my heart was very cold towards this person, even though I didn't see him. I literally said or wished him dead. But God had to deal with that if he was going to use me, if I was going to grow in him. He had to purge that out of me, and he gave me an opportunity. He, now the one who abused me, already passed away by that time. So, how could he possibly do that? Well, I'm working at Gulfstream, I have co workers. There was a man that was huge on... Everybody knew he was a Christian man. All of a sudden, he ups and quits. Nobody's like, what in the world? No notice, no nothing. A week or two later, we see him all over the news. As a child molester. At that point, I had a decision to make. Because I worked with him. And God said, go see him. Like, Okay, God. If I must. (laughs) Okay. And he'd soften my heart because I started praying for him. And when you are praying for someone, not about someone, when you are praying for someone, your heart softens towards them because you're starting to see them through the eyes of God. God created him. And God loves him, whether you do or not. And he wanted me to go and tell him, and I went. We had all that little thing between us, and I had to pick up the phone, we were eye to eye. And by the grace of God, it was totally him. I can't even remember half the stuff I said, but I know part of it was basically saying, as long as you have breath... As long as God has given you breath, then He can use you if you're allowing to. I don't convict. God's called me to give you hope. And as I told him why I was there, he got very emotional. So I knew God, it wasn't invade. I knew God was planting a seed. And honestly, I don't know what's happened to him since. I don't know if he's in jail, out of jail, but I knew that God wanted me to plant a seed. And I knew God was doing a dual thing because he needed to purge my heart. And he needed me to love instead of hate. And I thank God to this day for that opportunity. It has freed me. And it can free you. If there's any kind of situation like that in your life where you have to forgive, you need to forgive. Because you need that freedom. We are called to receive all, no matter their past. If we're to receive the harvest, if we're supposed to, if they're coming in, we don't look at them through judgmental eyes. What have you done? What have you done? Okay, you're good. Mm, I'm not so sure about you. Now, that does not mean that I would go leave my daughter with this person. He does expect us to use common sense. And it doesn't mean that he can't redeem that person fully. He can. But our job is to show God's love and his mercy and his grace. The same love and mercy and grace he showed you is allowed to them. So when we are called to receive all no matter their past, what does it mean to receive in this way? When you receive, you take something literally or figuratively, or you just take it back. When we receive the prodigals, we are taking them back, just as Christ did for you. When we receive a, prod- um, yeah, when we receive a prodigal, we are not ignoring their previous sin. This is to be repented of in order to accept Christ, but we are receiving them back into God's original intent for them and who God created them to be, and nurturing them in an environment that restores their relationship with God and revives in them their God-given identity and his call in their life. That's mercy, people. None of us deserve that. That is the mercy of Christ. In Acts 10, 34 through 35. I'll just read it. You got it? Yeah. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted. Not might be, is accepted by him. In verse 35, it's not suggesting that salvation is possible apart from Christ's redemptive power or his work. Rather, he emphasizes that through Christ, people of all nations can be saved, even if they're not Jews. We see in Luke 15 that the Pharisees' criticism of Jesus' open association with known sinners and social outcasts brought about the three parables in this passage illustrating God's love for sinners. Now, those that are coming in, they may have been in church but before, maybe they haven't, but you can't assume that they know the Bible. Now, I realize, if not all, that at least 90-something percent of y'all know what a parable is. But for the sake of those who may not, Parables are earthly stories to illustrate a heavenly truth. So don't always assume that people know the word. In Matthew 13, 9-17, through, 7, 9 through 17, the disciples ask why Jesus speaks in parables. He who has ears to hear... Well, Okay. That's right. I'm sorry. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciple, disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to to them it has not been given. For whoever has to him or to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has, will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear, and shall not understand, and seeing you will see, and not perceive. For the heart of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For surely I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus' attitude greatly opposed that of the self-righteous. The Pharisees in Luke 15 correspond... Where's Devin? She was singing this earlier. Luke 15 correspond to the 99 sheep and the nine coins and the elder brother. The tax collectors and sinners correspond to the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. Luke 15, 1-3... Then all the tax collectors and the sinners draw near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke the parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which lost which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. (laughs) And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need to repent. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents." Now, I'm going to back up a little bit. If we back up to Luke 14, 35, it says again, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In Luke 15, 1 through 2, who was hearing Jesus? It says, then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained. The church was complaining while the sinners were hearing Jesus. Our pastor gets a lot of backlash from the church. Complaining about everything under the sun. Does our complaining drown out our ability to hear God's word through him? How sad it is when the lost can hear God better than we can. Were you more able to hear from God when you first came to him than you are now? What complaints are we so focused on that we miss the opportunities to hear God and express the humility needed to reach out to the lost around us? Jesus spoke truth and the lost were hungry for it. Do the lost draw near to you to hear God's truth? Or are, you com- are your complaints and expectations drowning out any truth that God wants to speak through you? We have to focus on hearing God's voice over our own in order to draw the lost home. And once they come home, we must receive them with his grace. Don't fill them up with petty complaints and religious expectations that, quite frankly, you're not even able to measure up to. Feed them the truth of God's word, which is his love letter to us. Not a rule book. God's love is what draws them and grows them. I'm sure you heard some say when they, you invite them to church, I can't go there. The, the church is going to catch on fire as soon as I walk through the doors. Anybody ever heard that one? Because I have on numerous occasions. Yeah, or fall down, something to that effect. And we see it as a lame excuse, but how we can see it or could see it is a mindset that they have of how the church reacts, which may be the same way the Pharisees did when Jesus associated with sinners. That's why so many of them think they have to get right before they come to Christ. In Luke fifteen four through 10, did I already read that? I think I did. Okay. Never mind. It's known that lost sheep tend to lie down helplessly and refuse to budge. In our sin, we are helpless and stubborn. But like the shepherd who lays the lost sheep across his shoulders to carry it, so does our Savior. He carries us, rejoicing. He's not fuming all the way back home wondering why he has to deal with his stubborn sheep, like we do our children sometimes. The shepherd didn't shun the stubborn sheep and leave it to the wolves. God deals harshly with shepherds who neglect their sheep, as shown in Ezekiel 34. You have the irresponsible shepherds, the king, prophet, and priest, who neglected their sheep, and then God, the true shepherd, who says in Ezekiel 34:11 and 16, For thus saith the Lord God, Indeed I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. In verse 16, I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away. Bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. Are you rejoicing when the lost sheep come home? All of them, not just the ones you know or approve of. Remember, God loves all of them. So when someone is sharing about their loved one coming back to the Lord, y'all, y'all know this is true. I've done it. We should be rejoicing with them and praising God over this heart of stone returning to flesh, but instead, unfortunately, we tend to have this passive response, oh, good for them, that's great, and move on. Let's intentionally rejoice over one sinner returning to Christ until it becomes a part of our natural response. Yeah. I think of the song, O oh, Holy Night, of course, at this time of the year we all do, and it's, I'm sure, not my, my favorite, The only one that has this as their favorite song. I love this song. I can't get enough of it. (laughs) But where it says, fall on your knees, oh, hear the angel voices. Oh, night divine. Oh, night when Christ was born. Oh, night divine. We always just equate that with physical birth of Jesus. But in Luke 15, it says, in the same way, the angels rejoice and there's more joy in heaven over one who repents. That's a divine moment. No matter if it's night or day when Christ is born in the heart of one who believed, that is a divine moment. It was a divine moment when you accepted Christ as your Savior. A true visual of how we are to receive the prodigals is through the parable found in Luke 15, 11 through 31, the parable of the lost son. The way the father receives his wayward son in this parable is how our heavenly father receives us when we return to him. my Bible study notes describe this passage stating, God is concerned with one lost person and rejoices in his recovery. Those who are legalistically, that's a big word, those who are legalistically self-righteous are not even aware of their need. Don't let your preoccupation with religious rituals, observances, blind you to your own sin. Don't let concern for God's law cause you to forget God's love for the lost we should love the sinner while hating the sin that has bound them from, a, from living out their true identity the other son in this parable is an example of a Pharisee's reaction to the prodigal son returning home Luke 15 11 through 13 I'm just gonna it's easier for me to read it out of this well I'll say it is Then he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided them, his livelihood. And not many days after the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. (laughs) Now, a prodigal is one who returns after an absence. In this story, the son is absent from the father, as are those who are praying for return for us. As we are praying for those who are wanting to return to Christ, we are wanting them to return to the father, our heavenly father. They are absent from them. And that's how this is portrayed in the scripture. In 14 through 16, but when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him into his field to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate and no one gave him anything. The prodigal son was desiring the pig slop that his rebellion and his choices led him to instead of desiring the bread of life. It's important to note here our rebellion towards God leads us to slop, and by the time we get to it, it actually looks appealing. This is where many are when they come to themselves and realize their need of God, and we need to realize that. In Luke 15, 17 through 19... Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that. Did I already say that? I did. I didn't read all the way to 19, though. (laughs) But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and despair? I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. My Bible study notes refer to verse 17, noting how the Father is present in the Son's memory in the far off country. The prodigals you've been praying for may seem to be very far away from God, but that doesn't erase their memory of Him. In verses 20 through 24, and He arose and came to His Father, but when He was still a great off, His Father saw Him, and He had compassion. And he ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatty calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry, for this is my son. He was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry." <laughs> Mm. The passage embodies the exact mindset and heart posture to receiving the prodigal. Receive them with rejoicing, forgiveness, being gracious and welcoming, showing mercy, showing the love of our father. The prodigal's father gave him a reception, which means it's a formal social occasion held to welcome someone or to celebrate a particular event, such as a wedding reception. This definition seems fitting since those who are homeward bound will literally be transitioning into the bride of Christ. In verses 25 through 32. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with them. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you, I have never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I may make merry with my friends. But as soon as a son of yours came who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son... You are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found." In the study notes of 25 through 30, it says the loveless attitude of the elder brother portrays the Pharisees' claim to self-righteousness, their doctrine of salvation by achievement, and their uncharitable attitude toward repenting sinners. Just as the elder brother had no true relationship with his father, so the Pharisees have no real relationship with God. We have to be careful of the Pharisee mindset. The Pharisee, the brother, has no real relationship with God. The brother was without love for his prodigal sibling. He was not happy to see him or receive him. Are you happy to see the prodigal or are you somewhat jealous? Sometimes we can be so settled as church members or believers that we become discontent in our faith. You might have a Pharisee mindset if you worship a God you don't know. The Pharisees didn't know God. They knew law. The Pharisee knew law, but not God. They rejected Jesus and served a God made up of law and religion. They served an idol they created and rejected the one true God. People need to see testimony of those who actually know God. If you're sharing your testimony, does it show that you know God? And I love what we sang earlier, and we've sung it a million times, But how he breaks down the wall, he tears down the walls. God will tear down the walls of religion Amen. to get to you. That's what he's doing right now. If we have any kind of pharisaical, is that a word, pharisaical? There you go. Um, mindset towards a prodigal. And Paul addresses this type of situation in Acts 17. Acts 17, 22 got that up there you do. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus. That's a big word y'all looked it up on Google. That's how they Google pronounces it and said, "Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, 'To the unknown god.' Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. <laughs> they built an altar to the unknown God. So my first thought was why? I mean, out of fear in case they missed one, what was that about? <laughs> in spite of their religiosity, the Athenians were ignorant of the true God. How do you worship a God you don't know? God, the great I am, does not leave us guessing on how to worship him. John 4, 23 through 24 says, we must worship him in spirit and in truth. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. John, I wanted to read that study note too. What matters is not where one worships, but the attitude of heart and mind. True worship is not mere form and ceremony, but spiritual reality, which is in harmony with the nature of God who is spirit, worship must also be in truth. That is transparent, sincere, and according to biblical mandates. After that, I wasn't sure if I'd go into this or not, but I'm going to. 427, the Jews considered it improper for a rabbi to speak to a woman in public. Jesus spoke to the woman at the well, and that wasn't normal procedure. And what did the woman in the well do after she evangelized? And my Bible, in this translation, this New King James Version, says she went and told the men. Now, this preaches on a subject I had to get over because I was taught in my Baptist church, women speak to women, that's it. But apparently... Jesus had other plans when he spoke to the woman at the well. And it was because that woman testified her whole city was saved. People read it. But the enemy would have liked to have kept her mouth shut. It's a whole other sermon, a whole other subject. I would love to discuss it with you if you want to. But we're going to move on but we really need to dig into Scripture and the meaning of Scripture when we're telling people to shut their mouths when they have the truth of God coming out of it. Areopagus, somebody asked me this earlier, <laughs> is the hill to the northwest of the Acropolis in Athens. In ancient Athens, the judicial council whose members the Areopagites met on his hill. I'm so proud of myself that I pronounced that right, y'all. So in Acts 17, 20, I already read that. They build an altar to the unknown God. How do you worship a God you don't know? And how did you come to faith? Think about how you came to faith. Some of you were raised in church. Some of you didn't go to church at all, and you went to a church service that you thought the church was going to burn down when you entered in, and it didn't, lo and behold. And... There was a seed planted. Maybe it took time to grow. Maybe right then you knew, i got to give my life to God. There's a better way than the way I'm living. Wouldn't it have been nice had we had that thought all along? I mean, that really, there's, I have a testimony of going back to God or accepting him young, going back to God because I went astray thinking my way is better. And let me <clears throat> reiterate here what pride is. When you reject God in his ways, that's pride because you think you know better than God. So we've got to come and, and really self-reflect on these things. God took me back. His lost sheep he wanted back. But there were times when I was in church and I was growing and then all of a sudden my focus on the things of the world and my self-will instead of God's will, and it took me right back to where I was, a slop. Thankfully, I'm not there anymore. <laughs> Praise God. But there are those prodigals that have been on that you know, merry-go-round, or whatever you want to call it, seesaw. But it's time that they see what a life is like of someone who truly knows God. And what it's like to live for him. Not like the chaos out there. They don't need that chaos. When they come to church, they're supposed to be experiencing peace. Sometimes there's more chaos in the church than there is out there. I grew up. There. We had, literally had business meetings on Wednesday nights. <clears throat> and I'm a, you know older kid, teen, young teenager. And I'm sitting here watching these grown adults yell at each other. fussing. And I'm like, where am I? That's not church, and that's not how the church acts. Do we have a bad day every once in a while? Sure. We don't live it as a lifestyle. That's what repentance is for. God is always purging our hearts. Let him purge yours. Now, many come to faith out of fear instead of faith. Faith. You've heard that pastor speaking hell and damnation, all the nine yards, and you got scared and you ran up front. I don't want to go to hell. I don't know what heaven is, really, but I don't want to go to hell. So you ran up front, and you you basically accepted Christ out of fear. Well, we need to examine why we accept Christ. Was it fear of hell and damnation, or did we allow Christ's love to permeate our hearts which drew us to him? If we were not drawn to him, y'all please listen to this part because it's so important because so many people... Speak their experience instead of God's word. If we were not drawn to Him due to His love, then we are likely to draw others by the same means we were drawn to Him. It's His love and kindness that took Him to the cross on our behalf. He wasn't a fear monger. Fear does not come from God. In 2 Timothy 1.7, it says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. God is love, and his word is his love letter to us. He loves us enough to correct us. That's the commandments and proverbs and spiritual guidance. He knows what is best for us. We do not omit his guidance. We receive it out of love for him. In John 4.8, it tells us, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So what does having the fear of the Lord mean? Sometimes these questions pop up in my mind, and I never knew the real answer to them. Praise God, the Holy Spirit reveals stuff to you. Because mm. Psalms 111.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. The difference between fearing God and being afraid of God is being afraid of God means you don't know his nature. You don't know who he is. The fear of God is described as, and I got this from the Institute and Basic Life Principles. I love this explanation of it. The fear of God is described as the posture of a person's heart who knows the enormity of God's holiness and yet trust in the extravagance of God's goodness. When we sing about reckless love, we're not saying that God's reckless and and just, you know, out there being a rebel. <laughs> that, that word reckless means he's not like the world. The world may see him as reckless. But he has a whole different way of loving than the world can ever offer us. So people who do not understand this and come to Christ afraid of him expect his judgment and don't understand his grace. Michael was saying when I was reading this to him, it's like they see him as an abusive father. And some of you may have had an earthly abusive father. God's not like that. How many of you want your spouse's faithfulness and commitment based on fear? Or your child's love based on fearing you? None of us, and neither does God. He's a God that loves you. He's not an oppressor who thrives on your fear. God desires you to desire him. So what are we, the church, relaying to those around us? Are we showing that we are afraid of God or that we fear God, having a profound reverence and awe of him? You might have a Pharisee mindset if you condition people to be afraid of God. The bride of Christ loves the Lord. And not because of what he can do for us, but for what he's already done based out of his pure love for us. That's what we need to relay to those who are homeward bound. So lastly, I want to reiterate the importance of prayer for those you are wanting to return to Christ and those who may have recently returned to him. Don't stop praying for them because they've returned to them. If you can, pray on tearing down specific strongholds in their life. Strongholds can be harmful thought patterns, prideful and arrogant attitudes. Be strategic in your prayers over them. We may pray against things like addictions, but it's best to understand what the root is that drew them to the addiction for example, and continually pray over them, asking the Holy Spirit for revelation into their situation. It doesn't mean you're being nosy. It means you're being strategic in how you pray. You're coming against the enemy. The enemy doesn't want you to have knowledge because he's scared of what you're going to do with it. To attack at every possible angle the lies the enemy has and trap them with. When we decree and we declare and we pray, over them examine your relationship with the Lord and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you areas that need to be submitted to him and any religious ideals that may have taken hold in ways that are detrimental to your walk with the Lord and to those who are watching you or that you are discipling now I ask forgiveness for anyone who was watching me or I was speaking to and I made them afraid of God or I did not show the love and mercy and grace that he has because that's not his way and we were to show him his way not ours I asked Pastor Kyle I said this may be cheesy I don't know but I got these little wooden crosses <laughs> in this gift box up here. God's gift to us was salvation. Jesus came as flesh and blood, as a baby, and that's what we celebrate during Christmas time. But he was born to die for our sins, and he didn't stop there. He rose from the dead, and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and me. And that gift keeps on giving if the church does what they're supposed to. Amen? Amen. Amen. So, I'm going to ask. If in, um, I want y'all to come up if you want to. And this will be a time of prayer. And it could be just religious mindsets, pharisaical mindsets that we have that we need to lay at the altar. Or maybe you never knew God or maybe you're coming back to Christ. This is a time for you to repent. And we welcome you home. And we want to be that church that embraces you and loves you. And shows mercy and just envelops you and grows you. We see people come alive, see people to come alive in Christ. That's what our motto is. (laughs) And we can't do that if we see it through any other eyes but the eyes of Christ. And on these, it's not very good writing because my marker tip was a little thicker than needed to be for this little tiny cross but it says homeward bound and on the back of it you can either write the name of a loved one or just let it remind you to pray and declare them decree that they are coming home you can do it every day every time you look at the cross this is you can time of year you can use it as an ornament it's a little keychain whatever you want to do to help remind you to pray for those who are lost and not only that That you are in a position and the mindset to receive them in. Amen. So come now. And we want to pray with you. If John, if you don't mind coming up here and Michael and Lee. Anybody that needs prayer. Maybe you need to let go of some unforgiveness. Whatever it is, we're here to receive it. And if you'd like one of these crosses, just come now and pray over your loved one. Decree over them God's love for them and that they are coming home. I'll do it now. those cross and some of you took more than one that's fine you can get more give them out I don't care but just hold it in your hand and think about the person that you that it represents to you right now person or people that you've been praying for to come home to the Father it starts with us it starts in our hearts and in our mindset. so first and foremost Lord We want to pray that we lay at the altar any mindsets that's not of you that would be blocking you from working through us to reach those around us, to love those around us, to feed those around us with the truth of your word. For the love and the mercy that draws us, that woos us to, to you, Lord, let it flow through us to them. Speak to our hearts, speak to our minds that you are love through and through. The deepest love that we could ever experience is right here through you. Let us be that to them. Are we willing to be that to them? And we repent right now if we if we aren't. Make us willing. Purchase, Father. Lord, we pray right now for that prodigal. Lord, surround them right now with your presence. Let them feel your presence. Let it permeate through their bodies, through their minds, through their hearts, Lord. Father, draw that prodigal. Turn their heart of stone into flesh, Lord. Just like you did us, Father. Let them feel your love and your mercy. You didn't come to condemn them. You came to save them. Lord, we declare and decree that not only that they're coming home, that they will feel the welcome that the prodigal son
1: gets.
0: Welcome, Lord, that you're giving us every time one comes, Lord. You rejoice. The heavens rejoice. The angels rejoice. Hallelujah. And we rejoice now. We rejoice in advance for those that are coming home right now in the name of Jesus. We say, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. We praise you, Lord God, for them. We desire, Lord, for you to fill their hearts with joy, to fill their hearts, Lord, that's just the world is so filled with chaos and confusion. And it's no wonder they come in confused, but Lord, as they enter this house, let that confusion disperse and let the truth of your word permeate, Lord. Let them have eyes to see and ears to hear, oh God. We thank you for this in Jesus' name, amen and amen.